This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 8th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. scripture reading comes from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Amen. Praise be to God. Thank you for being here. My name is Sam, and I have the joy of getting to preach a lot here. We're going to get right to it. I'm going to pray, and we are going to go through that passage that was just read. Hopefully you have your Bibles. There's several other passages we're going to hit. If you don't have a Bible, as I'm praying, sneak out, grab a Bible, and open it up to 1 Peter, which is near the back of the Bible. So you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are. We are here, Lord, because You have done something on our behalf, though we could not do it ourselves. And that is bring us into Your presence through the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, for doing everything. We have nothing to offer but our sin. And yet, You cover our sin. You forgive our sin. You cleanse us of our guilt and our shame. In Jesus, and you do more than that, you call us to yourself, into your presence, and this is why we're here, Lord. We're here to worship you. We're here to declare you. We are here to praise you who are worthy. And you give us your word, Lord. I pray that you move me out of the way this morning, and you will do only what you can do by your spirit, through your word, which is to bring the conviction we need or the comfort we need at such a time as this. Help us, Lord. Only you know exactly where each and every one of us are. We all come here with brokenness. We all come here with distraction. We all come here with thoughts that want to really draw our minds away from you. And in this short time, Lord, would you draw us close to you so that we can hear you speak. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we are almost done with 1 Peter. A couple more weeks and we'll be in the book of Acts. And just by way of just reminder, the Apostle Peter is writing, as we see in the first verse of this epistle, to a, a, a number of churches, probably like 10 different churches in um, an area around Asia, these churches that are scattered throughout And this is actually the first of two letters he seems to write to the same people. If you were to read in 2 Peter, which is obviously just after 1 Peter, chapter 3, he begins by saying, this is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved, implying that he wrote the first letter to these same people. And he writes, in both of them, in both of these letters, 
I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the apostles. And then he continues, and I'll paraphrase, that you should remember that scoffers will come in the last days. You should remember that the day of judgment is coming. And you should remember that the Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promises. So he's telling these people the same thing in two different letters, reminding this people who are very fearful, who are at this point suffering, but not as worse or bad as they will suffer, reminding them to find comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming again and that God is not slow in making that come to pass. And as he does remind them about that day, It brings to mind for all of us and all who believe that there will be a day when Jesus will return and will forever live in His presence in a place where there's no longer sin and Satan has no power. But in the meantime, this is where we're at. God's people continue to live in a world that is increasingly hostile toward Jesus and toward the Word of God. And while there are Christians in other parts of the world who are to this day killed for their faith, Christians in America endure a different kind of persecution, though that might change one day. In Peter's day, Christians were slandered, at least at this time. They were marginalized and excluded for their association with Jesus. And most likely... This letter was written before the persecution of Nero. So maybe you've heard of Nero. He is one of the worst emperors. Well, they're all pretty bad. Of Rome. He lit the city on fire himself, and then he blamed the Christians for it. And that began what amounted to a pretty brutal persecution. But the Christians were kind of an easy group to blame. They were, at that time, before the fire and before all the persecution, they were kind of considered a little cult of Judaism. They thought they were Jewish. And there was enough anti-Semitic feelings at that time that made them easy target. They were viewed as maybe even cannibals who ate their Savior's blood and flesh because of some of the things that they believed about communion. And they refused to offer incense to the emperor. So they were easy to pick on, easy target, easy to blame. And what started though was just hatred. What started as insults ended in genocide in some of the most brutal ways. And that genocide hasn't fully happened at the time of this letter. But he is writing this people to encourage them for what they are experiencing and in many ways to prepare them to experience some fiery trials. He's telling them to expect them and to rejoice in them. There's a picture I want to put up on the screen of a young boy. Saw this uh, young boy in 2015 on the cover of, I believe it was a Voice of the Martyrs magazine. The picture is larger and the article is um, pretty intense. His name is Danjuma Shakaru. He lived in a Christian village in Nigeria that was attacked in 2015. 
And as you can see, he was attacked uh, with a machete in the head, um, lost an eye. There are parts of his body that are very important to have that were cut off. And he wears a bag for the rest of his life now. And if you read the article, you know what he talked about? And if you saw the pictures and multiple pictures, he's smiling. He said, I have the joy of the Lord. And you're like, I think I need that. Right? I lose my joy for much less. And you, I was struck, I was, I was moved to tears like at my own like pity party that I perpetually throw myself and seeing this child who has been brutalized for being a Christian and yet saying, I forgive them. I have the joy of the Lord. Pray for me. Pray for me, right? He has a way of rejoicing that I need that Perhaps is what Peter is trying to tap into here. He begins in verse 12, and he says, Beloved, or my friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And knowing the context and knowing what's happening here, You see, Peter's been talking to these people who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, and we can't use that phrase enough, but I fear if we use it too much, we kind of lose sight of what's happened. When you talk about being born again, you are made new, you are made different. Christians are different now by nature and really by choice. They have a different identity and they function now with a different loyalty and they have a different trajectory where they're going to end up. I am in Christ. I am led by Christ. I'm waiting for Christ. That's my mantra, right? I am in Christ. I'm led by Christ. I'm waiting for Christ. That's different than the world. And walking in the light, which is an interesting phrase that we use about the Christian faith, not just walking in morality, but walking in the light. Jesus is the light. I'm walking in the light. Do we realize that the world rejects the light and walks in darkness? Okay? Jesus said this, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We love that verse. We should read it past it. And in verse 19 of that same chapter, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So, if Jesus calls us to walk in the light, if Jesus, as I'm sure many of you have heard, calls us to be the light of the world, be the light of the world, and the world hates the light, well, it doesn't take much to put two and two together, 
about what our experience is going to be that my new life in Christ, if I'm really born again in Christ, it's going to naturally generate surprise in people which will lead to offense. So in other words, you see Peter doesn't say, you know, if a trial comes, he says, when, when the trial comes, those who are not in Christ, those who see Christians living out their Christ-like lives should be surprised at Christian behavior. At the same time, Peter says, we, those who are in Christ, should not be surprised by theirs. We should not be surprised by their responses, if there is a response. Although it's not to be desired, it's not to be pursued, we're not supposed to go dive into every fiery trial we can find and pick as many fights with the world as possible. It is going to come into our lives because of our association and our allegiance to Jesus. Do you know there's a difference between association and allegiance? But they do go together. Many of us do not fear identifying with Jesus, but there are many of us who refuse to dedicate ourselves to Jesus insofar that we truly have sworn allegiance to Him and follow His ways. One's a label, right? An important label, a, a good label, and one is in many ways a lifestyle. And a label does nothing. Anyone can call themselves a Christian, but Jesus didn't come and say, hey, guys, I'd like you to follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You call yourselves Christians and then you do what you want. That's not what He called us to, but that's what many, I fear, do. In verse 16 of this same passage that Peter's in in chapter 4 here, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Did you know the term Christian is actually only used three times in the New Testament? Once here and twice in the books of Acts. It's not a very common term in the early church, but it's certainly common for us today. The book of Acts says that the term actually began in a city called Antioch. So they were first called Christians. And I don't have time to go into all of Antioch, but Antioch was a very interesting city. It was called all the world in one city. That was the name kind of phrase that described it. It was built like a wheel. It had all these sections with all these different kinds of people that got along, but were different. And they had their own distinctions. And those who followed Christ ended up kind of crossing over all these socioeconomic barriers, these racial barriers, these gender barriers. That's what the gospel did. Right? It suddenly treated women differently than they've been treated before. It treated slaves differently than they've been treated before. We saw all this in Peter, and people were like, whoa, you guys are like different. You're so different, we're going to create, in many ways, a new category for you called Christian. Because you aren't working under these normal categories. It's like the Gospel has done something brand new. And as time went on, as Peter is writing, they were certainly different, but different was not good. And the term Christian at this time was used as somewhat of an insult. That's not how it started, but that's 
how it's being used here. It's like Peter tells his audience, he's like, look, embrace the label precisely because it means you are suffering like Christ. Those Christians, yes, I'm one of them. Those Christians, that's me. Now today, if we say Christian, that's kind of a loaded, ambiguous term. I'm not sure everyone agrees on exactly what it means. Back in the early church, it was very clear what it meant. Today, I fear that that term is full of all kinds of baggage that may or may not be connected with Jesus or His Word. There are many who call themselves Christians today, and yet they deny the teachings of Christ with how they live. And this has caused some people to kind of abandon the term altogether. It's kind of like what's happening with the term evangelical, right? Well, I don't like that because that is misunderstood. I would argue the same perhaps with the term Christian. Some people have stopped using it altogether and like, well, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus. To try and kind of detail it a little more clearly. But whether it's a Christian or a Christ follower or a Jesus freak or Bible thumper, whatever, the name only matters insofar as it means we walk in a manner worthy of the name. The enemy intends to use trials that come with being identified as a Christian, and I would say in the biblical sense, a Christian, making it difficult for us so that we will abandon our faith, so that we'll fear identifying with Christ, that we'll fear calling ourselves Christians and standing for the name of Christ. But God allows, ordains, permits, whatever word makes you feel comfortable, these trials to come so that our faith will be strengthened. You know, this is what Peter's already said. Peter already said this in the very beginning of his letter. If you look in chapter 1, verse 6, and he even attaches the word rejoice, which we'll get to in a second. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and he's telling us rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is returning, that we have this inheritance waiting for us. And he says, well, though now, before you're actually with Jesus, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test Tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like tests come, trials come, and they're intended to strengthen our faith, while the enemy uses the same exact trial to break our faith. I've appreciated greatly what Johnny Erickson Tata said, and she said it several times, that God permits the things He hates to accomplish the things He loves. And God loves to conform us to the image of His Son and to make us holy. And I know many times, and we were talking about this as, uh, as elders, we were kind of processing this passage, 
And I brought up the idea or quoted somebody saying that God isn't interested in our happiness, but our holiness. And you may have heard that before. And we knocked that around a little bit. And as we discussed it, I kind of came to understand that the pursuit of holiness, I believe, actually leads to happiness, though we don't think that's the case. And that that pursuit of holiness, which does lead to happiness, goes through this thing called humbleness. And as we are humbled and through fiery trials and through difficulties, we find ourselves actually happy in Christ. Which is what everyone's actually pursuing is contentment and joy. But we typically don't think that's the pathway that I would choose to bring it about. Now, our association with Jesus and our allegiance to His world word is going to be offensive if the world is really dark that we live in. And it's offensive because the gospel is exclusive. There's no way to, to cut that out. It's both universally offered and exclusive in the sense that there is only one name given under heaven through which men might be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to glory. That is through Jesus Christ, which excludes a lot of people. And so, like, if we're not standing on that basic truth, which is a verse in the Bible, which is something Jesus taught, it's no surprise that we wouldn't offend anybody. He offers forgiveness to all who will repent and believe, but He says, this is the way. Believe in Me. Trust in Me. And so without apology, the Gospel says that there is something to believe, someone to follow, and some way to live. And if you believe, and if you obey, and if you call others to the same, you will be insulted for acting the name of Christ and standing for the ways of Christ. And those insults I've learned come in different ways. And Peter's saying, like, don't be surprised when this comes. And we're not really surprised by the first one, but we are surprised by some of the others. The first is the world, right? The world insults those who associate and pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. Those who follow Jesus are insulted. And it shouldn't be surprising. We are literally told multiple times, don't let this surprise you. And yet, we're still surprised when someone doesn't like us talking about Christianity. The world is hostile toward Christians, and it may not be as bad as it was in the days of Nero, at least not in America, but there are plenty of attacks on the ways of Christ and His people going on every day. And we should not be surprised when the world wants to attack Bible-believing Christians as bigoted or narrow-minded or blank-phobic. I mean, fill in the blank. Anything you say is wrong suddenly has become a phobia. And although we, we were talking about this, it might have been Andrew and I, we live in a kind of this weird conservative little pocket even in Washington State, right? Where it's like, Snohomish, Snohomish County, well, it's more conservative than King County. Like, you know, and you kind of like, you kind of think for a second that maybe we're not really being insulted for being Christians in this area, but it doesn't take much of a drive to realize that Christians today in cities nearby, in neighborhoods nearby, 
experience fiery trials and insults for identifying with Christ. There are people today, perhaps in this room, who have been threatened with losing their jobs. And we go, that really happened? Yes, that really happens. There's people who have lost opportunities at jobs because they identify with Christ. There are people whose businesses are sued because they identify with Christ and they stand on His Word. Christians are insulted. They are excluded. They are mistreated. They are marginalized for their allegiance to Jesus. And I'm not saying this to like, feel bad for us. Jesus said, don't be surprised when this happens. Jesus told us the world is going to hate you. And it's interesting, like, I don't know who said it, but there was a gentleman I remember listening to him preach and he said, look, if, you are, if you're preaching the biblical Jesus, the world is not going to like you. And if you are preaching the unbiblical Jesus, the world is going to love you. No one wants to be hated, but John, right, best friend of Jesus, 1 John 3.13, I'm really having trouble interpreting this verse. Maybe you can help me. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. What could that mean? Right? And I know some of us go, I haven't experienced that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, that's not what I've encountered in the world. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Now, I realize it's painful and no one wants to be marginalized in anything, but we must remember that today in our very tolerant world, one of the few things that is not tolerated is the Christian faith. Now, that shouldn't surprise Like, I know the world hates it, it's dark, whatever. The second one kind of surprises us a little bit more, and that's when we get insults from within our own families. And again, maybe some of you have never experienced this. Though the world's hatred might not surprise us, right? All the world loves their sin. We expect like our families to love us and not disdain what we believe in. Even if they disagree, we expect at least our families, right? Our blood to expect that, well, their love is going to overcome or overlook whatever disagreements we might have. And maybe that's been your experience, but it's not everybody's. Standing up for our faith in the world is actually sometimes easier than standing up for our faith in our own families. And that's because the insults that often come, and sometimes they're just very passive-aggressive ones, hurt a little bit deeper. Some stranger hates me, whatever! Right? My family member's like, why are you so messed up? What's wrong with you? That hurts. But what did Jesus say, right? In Matthew 10, he, he couldn't have been any more like explicit, right? Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a per... <laughs> And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
So you think about living your life in accordance with God's Word, like that's the authority in your life, that is how you determine what is right, what is wrong, what you vote for, what you don't vote for, how you spend your money, what job, like everything. And you encounter and you live very close to people who live under a different authority, there can't help be some tensions there. And again, this is perhaps more painful than persecution from the world, but it should not be surprising. The third kind, and the last one I'll talk about, is maybe the most surprising and most unexpected. We get insults from the world, expect that. Insults from our family, eh, should expect that. That really stinks. What about insults from within the church? Does that happen? Oh, naive one. There is persecution from within the church because everyone who is in the church does not actually fully associate and pledge allegiance to the biblical Jesus. I mean, you'd expect that at least in the church. Like, we're all on the same page, right? We all agree this, this says what it says. But sadly, that is not the case, and it shouldn't surprise us either. When Paul left the church of Ephesus, he actually warned the elders about the wolves out in the world. No, the wolves that would come from within. That's what he warned them about. The church is full of false converts and false teachers, which creates a lot of real tension. And they are often most revealed when you actually confront them with God's truth. And their sin is exposed. I've literally had people sitting on my couch talking to me about the relationship and going, yeah, you know, remember we're living in sin. And I'm like, what? Let's open the Bible. And suddenly, I'm not the friendly pastor, right? Suddenly, I'm not the one you want to hang out with. And you're like, wait, you, you said you were Christians, right? I'm just telling you what Jesus taught. I'm telling you what, what the Bible says that we ought live like and how you're living is out of alignment with the Bible. So, right, we agree that the Bible's authority. Oh, that's your interpretation. Oh, well, that's really convenient and very conflict-producing. This shouldn't surprise us. Let me give you a verse. It's going to fry your noodle a little bit. Ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So 1 Corinthians, or Corinth, is a pretty messed up church. I know it's interesting. People are like, let's go back to the early church. Have you read Corinthians? Like, they're really messed up. So as much as you want to go back, you're not going to go back and like get rid of sin. It's there in the very beginning. And so in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, which is a very messed up church, he goes, he's like, man, you guys are so spiritual. Woo, you got everything you need. And then he goes into like, and you're sinning like crazy. Stop. If you read the second letter, he responds saying, I'm sorry I made you cry in your letter, like because of that letter, but I'm not really sad because you repented. So there you go. 
But we speak hard words. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, speaking again at, at this conflict that's going in the church, some tensions there in the church, what does he say? When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Factions. Disagreements, arguments, tensions. And he says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There's going to be tensions because what those tensions reveal in many ways is genuine belief or unbelief in the church. And I would argue and I have experienced this personally, and maybe you have at times, that some of the worst persecution over biblical Christianity often comes from within the household of God. And I have experienced more vile insults from so-called Christians than I ever have from the world. And nine times out of ten, it's because I'm opening up God's Word and saying, this is what it says. That one out of ten times because I was probably a jerk and needed to repent, right? Certainly does happen. But most of the time it's not. There are many who suffer rightly because they are unbiblical and wrong, Peter says. But I would argue that there are many more who suffer wrongly because they are biblical and right. And so Peter says, Rejoice when all this happens. Check it out in verse 14 and 15. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You know, Christ was insulted by the world. Christ was insulted by His family. Christ was insulted by those who He came to save. All of them. We always like, hey, Christ, like, He hung out with sinners and they liked Him. No, there were sinners that hated Him too. There were religious people that hated Him. Irreligious people that hated him. Old people that hated him. Young people that hated him. Rich people that hated him. Poor people that hated him. And that loved him. It says, Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So in response to our faith, from people of the world, from people at times in our family or extended family or friends, even from within the church, comes often sinful slander. And our response to them should not be much of a defense or slander in return, but rejoicing. That sounds really hard to do. Now let me tell you something about rejoicing because we're like, I just got to have joy, but I don't feel joy. Rejoicing is that idea of this abiding joy, consistent joy. It's a joy that's not governed by circumstances or situations, but it is in very right way governed by attitude. What I mean is that rejoicing is a verb. It's an action word. 
And while I don't think it wise, because the psalmist shows us this, like we don't just ignore and stuff our feelings, but we certainly should not be governed by them, especially when insults come. What if rejoicing isn't not just a description? Because that's not how Peter seems to be saying it. He actually commands it. So what if our rejoicing is less about how I feel and more about my obedience? Oh, I don't like that. I do not like that. You tell me I have to decide to be joyful. No, I'm telling you, Peter said that rejoice and that your feelings are going to make it really difficult, but you're to press through that because of your desire to obey God and your trust that when you do, joy is on the other side. So where do I... Okay, Okay, fine. That sounds really good. Where do I get this? Where do I get the strength to do that? To go beyond like this hostility I'm experiencing. How do I do that? Well, we look to Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter 12. Maybe you've never read this verse, or maybe you've read the first part. Right? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him. So, there's a joy that is set before Him, and between that joy and Him is what? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Jesus chose joy and endured the cross on the way to obtaining it. We have to look past the insults and the feelings that come when the world attacks us for following Jesus or a family or the church for the joy that is awaiting us. And you go, what is that joy? What is the joy that has the, that kind of power to govern our attitudes and our actions? And I would say it's three simple things. The first is the joy of identifying with Jesus Christ. It's the joy that's set before us is uh, I, am, I am connecting with, identifying with, associating with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It is a blessing to be insulted for the name of Christ because it means you're close to Christ. That right there is enough. Peter says that if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory rests upon you. Insofar as you are insulted, insofar as you suffer this way, you are marginalized, you are excluded, you are just looked upon freakily, or dare I say, you are martyred. For believing in Jesus, for confessing Jesus, for standing for Jesus, for praising Jesus, for serving Jesus, for choosing Jesus and not something else you could have chosen, you're revealing that you are actually a Christian. Now here's some things we really have to be honest about. And Peter did say in the beginning, trials if necessary. 
So I don't think we need to go out and seek out as many trials as we can to prove we're Christians. At the same time, if you are never insulted throughout your Christian life, if you are never suffering, if you're never encountering any kind of hostility for your faith, if you are never looked down for how you are a faithful Christian by the world, by your family, by the church, then you may need to do a self-examination to see if you are in the faith. And you very well may be, but you may not be living like it. If it never happens, I know my own children, I love them very much, but I know that there are times that I have to confront them and their sin, and every time I'm doing that, I'm standing for Jesus. And they don't like that. They don't like that as children. They don't like that as young adults. But I'm standing for Jesus, hoping and trusting that they will repent. But you know how easy it is as our kids get older to ignore and say nothing? I raise them the way they'll go. And they're going. What a cop-out. You can still stand for Christ. That's just in your family. It's not even at your job, in the world, wherever, or in the church. There is a joy with associating with Jesus. Check out this verse. Oh man, this one just was like, are you kidding me? It's like when you read the Bible really slowly and carefully, you're like, oh my goodness. Romans 8, verses 16 to 17, right? Peter, Peter said like, hey, you're insulted for the name of Christ. You're blessed because the Spirit of glory rests upon you. Like, What does that even mean? Look what Paul says. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Right? Okay, I got the Holy Spirit. He's bearing witness in me that I'm a child of God. And if children, then heirs. Woo! Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Yes! Provided we suffer with Him. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I like that provision in there. Right? I like the heir with Christ, child of Christ. How do you know that the Spirit of God is with you, provided we are suffering with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. He attaches suffering in there with Him. The joy of identifying with Jesus, to be close to Jesus. The second thing, the joy set before us of being, big words, sanctified or changed. Like the fiery trials that are brought to us are not trials of fire to just burn us. They're trials of refinement to change us. In many ways, the experience and the evidence of trials in our life is evidence not of God's absence, but His presence of the fact that He is committed to continually changing us and growing us. He's not leaving us where we're at. He wants us to get stronger as His children. He wants to change us, to make us more glorious and more conformed to the image of His Son. God uses trials in our lives to conform us to that image, to make us complete. We know this from James, which again, he throws in joy and suffering. And if joy is a command, if joy is like this thing we are to pursue and decide, what does it say? Count it all joy, my brothers. Not because it's a really wonderful experience to be insulted and hated and hurt. But we're looking right to the joy. Here's the cross. There's the cross. There's the pain. Uh, there's pain to get to that joy. What's the joy? The joy is 
knowing that when you meet trials of various kind, you know that the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. And let, right? Let steadfastness have its full effect. You can hinder that. You can hinder this trial from doing its work in your life, making you perfect, making you complete, lacking in nothing, right? Imagine your life as a house. It needs renovation. There's some rotten walls and whatnot. You start knocking walls down and you're like, what have we done? This looks horrible. You're not looking to the joy past the renovation project, right? I know what this is going to look like. I'm trusting it's going to look better because now there's holes in my floor and my walls. That's what our lives are like. And God uses these trials to go, no, that wall is rotten. I, 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 really, I really like that wall. No, nope, it's got to go down. It rips it down. You're like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm fixing it. I'm making it better. It's rotten. You don't get it. Making us stronger. There's a joy in that. If we look back at the trials we've had in our lives, and I don't mean just the suffering, the sicknesses. I mean like where you, it hurt to stand up for your faith. It's many times we look back at those moments and go, man, when I took a stand, when I identify with Jesus, when I suffered as Jesus has suffered in this world, in his family, even amongst his own people, I grew in ways I never would have grown had I not experienced that. There's a joy in that. The last joy that I think drives us past the cross, past the difficulty, is knowing that we have reward in the future. Peter says that near the end of his passage that the time of judgment again has begun and it's begun first with the household of God. And he even has an interesting phrase in there where he says that if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I think it's fair to say that if salvation actually includes suffering, then damnation must be incredibly and horribly worse. If salvation includes some level of pain, I can't imagine. And what a joy then. What a joy that this pain and this difficulty is the closest to hell I'll ever get. What an awesome joy that is. But it, more than that, right? Genuine followers of Jesus, they may face, and God says this in the book of Hebrews, you may face some discipline now, but you will never ever face God's ultimate final judgment condemning ju uh, discipline. Jesus has been judged in my place now and forever. And so if there's any pain that's coming at all, any difficulty, that's a pain and a discipline from a loving Father who wants to produce something in me. It's not because God hates me. And there's also the promise of reward. He promises reward. Peter helps us to set our minds on the blessed hope of the return of Jesus and the imperishable inheritance waiting for us that he talked about in the very beginning of his letter. And he says in that last verse, let those who suffer according to God's will. That's a tough one. There's a full sermon right there. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Finding joy while we are hated, for lack of a better term, 
means being mindful of our souls. We don't think about our souls too much. But it's often pretty shocking as you read through the Psalms how many times David sings to his soul. What's wrong with you, my soul? Pick yourself up, soul! We don't think about our souls very much. We think about our flesh a lot and our souls not too much. It's because we don't think enough about spiritual things because we're so distracted by so many earthly things. Whatever we find crucified in our lives, we can look past the cross where our expectations or our comforts are killed and see the joy of heavenly reward. That's the joy, right? Okay, I I might lose this. I might lose my reputation. I might lose my job. I might lose opportunity for prosperity. I might lose just friendliness in my family gatherings. You ever ridden that tension of a family gathering where you know something that you want to say and you should say like, ugh. I don't know if losing that's that bad, right? Crucify that bad boy right there, right? And look for the joy beyond that. Like it's interesting how unwilling we are to maybe speak the truth and stand for Jesus in different contexts because we believe something bad's going to happen. We're more fearful of that bad thing happening than we are fearful of God. Of standing before God and Him saying, why don't you say something? We don't believe Jesus when it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Like, Jesus says rejoice. Paul says rejoice. James says rejoice. Peter says rejoice. And don't be surprised. But maybe we should be concerned if the insults and the fiery trials never come. We glorify God in the name of Christ by enduring suffering with joy. And I'll close with this. After the persecution of the church broke out in Jerusalem, so this is beginning of book of Acts. We'll go through this in a couple weeks. The early church began to be persecuted by this guy named Saul, but there were certainly others happening. The hatred for God's people was very clear. And so it broke out in Jerusalem. James, right? Peter, James, and John. James was killed. Peter was imprisoned. And then Paul was transformed and became this incredible missionary and church planner. And when Peter, I'm sorry, when Paul was saved, I don't know if you knew this, in Acts 9 you can read it, but Jesus actually said, like, I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my glory. And he suffered. And I'll read you a passage out of Acts 14 of what happened to Paul and his suffering. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. I believe this is the city of Lystra, where I believe Timothy was watching and eventually joined his team. They dragged him out of the city after they stoned him, supposing he was dead. So like if, he's probably a pretty big mess. He looks dead. He's not moving. Let's drag him out of the city. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. So he's either faking it or he suddenly got resurrected in a powerful way. Who knows? But he rose up and he goes back in the city. And says, and the next day he went 
on with Barnabas and Derby. Like, we'd be like, I need to take a couple days off, right? I was just stoned. Rough, I need to just take a break. Next day, he's like already on the mission field. Again, we talk about like how much less we lose joy. How much less we give up on God's mission. How much less we refuse like, I'm not going to, I'm going to be embarrassed if I stand up for Jesus here. Really? He was stoned. The next day he goes. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, same city where he was stoned, and Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And this is what he told them, encouraging them to continue the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that's the first thing we tell people when they become Christians today. Hey, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. It includes all kinds of tribulations. But that's what the Bible says. That we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect this. We should even rejoice in this. And so that's the call for us all. That we have the courage to walk in a manner worthy of that call. And through suffering, Jesus himself became our perfect and complete sacrifice, our perfect priest, a mediator who is able to sympathize with every experience we ever have completely in every way. We are genuinely and truly not alone. Even though I may not fully understand your experience, there is someone who completely does, and his name is Jesus. He lives to help us endure. He lives to help us obey to help us become what we couldn't without these difficulties and to help us live for Him no matter the cost because of the joy that it means. May we in Christ find the strength to stand for Jesus in a world that hates us and hates His ways. And if that results in insults and loss or exclusion or lawsuits or broken relationships or broken bank accounts or even broken bodies, May we, like the first disciples who experienced this, say this, quote, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name as they went and boldly preached and taught about Jesus. May that be our attitude. Man, that guy hates me because I believe in Jesus. Wow. How awesome is that? Not our first reaction. We take communion every Sunday to remind ourselves that although we hesitate to identify with Jesus, especially when it's difficult and ugly, He didn't wait to identify with us until we were less ugly and less difficult. He stepped into our brokenness and He endured a hostility that we can't possibly imagine for the joy set before Him. And you know what the joy was for Him? Us. It was being present with His redeemed people. My prayer is that you come up this morning, for those who are Christians, this is for you. This is what Jesus gave to us, that we might remember who He is and remember that He is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. And that if we confess before men, which we do as we take communion, that he will confess our name before the Father. And if you are not a Christian, I would plead with you 
to turn from your sins, to stop hiding in the darkness and come into the light. There is no joy in the darkness, but there is true joy in the light. And I would love to pray with you, love to meet you. Let me pray.